Tonight, as we continue our series, we're going through the books of the Bible, one book each week, and tonight we're into our 15th book of the New Testament, the book of 1 Timothy. And so let's begin with a prayer, and then we'll launch right into our conversation. Well, it's not really a conversation, but it makes me feel better. Lord God, I just ask that you would grant us your grace to, to hear, to understand uh, far beyond the capacity of myself to communicate information, Lord, but rather that each of us might have a conversation with you but through your spirit. God, you'd speak into our lives things that we need to hear from you. And just pray, Lord, that you would just tailor fit it this moment to each of our needs in particular. We trust you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As was customary with uh, all of Paul's letters, he begins by identifying himself as a writer. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, or Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. This begins the first of what would be a series of letters that are called the pastoral letters, and they're called that because they were written specifically to pastors and not to churches. In other words, they were designed, two of them written to Timothy, the other one written to Titus, both who were associates of Paul, uh, pastors who labored with him in ministry, and who had been appointed to oversee specific churches. Now... um, In this case, the pastor was Paul's young disciple, Timothy. He tells us that in verse 2. He says, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Kind of an interesting statement, as we'll see in a moment. You see, Paul had met Timothy in the city of Lystra on his second missionary journey. Uh, At that time, Timothy was a young man, probably in his early 20s. It says in Acts 16, beginning the first verse there, that Timothy's mother was a Jewess. In other words, she was Jew. And a believer, but whose father was a Greek, which means a Gentile, and implies that he was not a Christian. And then it says, the the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, we might look at that and say, that's a kind of a high price of admission. Why was it necessary? Well, something we saw as Paul went on his missionary journeys, he always made the first stop in each new city, the local synagogue. And the only way that Timothy could be allowed to be part of that ministry team was if he was circumcised. Not because Paul did it for his faith, but essentially Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm willing to become all things all men that I might win as many as I possibly can. And so this was an accommodation, certainly wasn't something that Paul was encouraging, recommending as a practice. In fact, later on, as this became an issue, we know that Paul argued against it quite uh, vociferously. But most likely in this case, Timothy's father was deceased. Uh, We know that his mother and his grandmother had become believers, and and probably after the father had passed away, since it was pretty much the custom in all the world at that time that the father's faith became the faith of the family, and to make decisions of faith outside of that was just simply not allowed. But they, in turn, led Timothy to Christ. We read that in 2 Timothy 1.5, where Paul says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which was first lived in, lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. 
kind of unique that we'd have that personal biographical information. We don't have another case of where we're told who the name of the mother and grandmother or any other uh, immediate relative was to uh, the characters we find in the Acts and later on letters. But it appears that Paul functionally adopted Timothy, if not legally, he functionally adopted him as if he was his own son, and at the very least, in his own heart, he felt that way. There was no one with whom Paul felt a greater kinship and closeness to. That's why the reference to him being my true son in the faith, he certainly wasn't his son in the flesh, but he saw him as if he was his own child in the faith. And it's interesting, he became probably his most trusted protege because when he wrote to the Philippians about Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Paul's way of saying that his heart for you is identical with my heart. In other words, there was such a camaraderie between Paul that he knew that Timothy simply felt the same thing about the things that mattered to Paul and, and would respond in the same caring and kind way. We're, we're not certain to where Paul was when he wrote this letter. Most likely, uh, we say Philippi because he makes reference to that, the region of Macedonia, which would be where Philippi was central. But we know this, that shortly after Paul's release from his first imprisonment in Rome, which lasted about two years, he was acquitted by Nero. Uh, uh, basically, Nero had not hit his uh, crazy stage yet. And he was acquitted of the charges that had been leveled against him by the Jews in Jerusalem. And there's a period during this time which he's free to resume his ministry and he travels widely. We don't know exactly what his itinerary was because he doesn't record it any place. But nonetheless, we know that he was traveling for at least two years when he is then rearrested after the burning of Rome. And eventually he will be executed in Rome by Nero. And that'll be the context of 2 Timothy, which we'll get to in the next book over. But basically, it's very clear as to where Timothy was when the letter was received. He says in verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus. So Timothy, uh, both by this indication and also by traditional history, it supports that during Paul's imprisonment that Timothy had been appointed to be the bishop uh, or literally the term in Greek is the episcope of the church which is in Ephesus. Now, what does that mean? The word bishop in English comes from this Greek word episcope. And episcope was a term that was used for any presiding official, whether it was a civic or a religious organization, so that we have organizations of all kinds that might have a president, which you have a civic club or even some kind of religious organization have this presiding officer they call the the president of the board of directors and so forth. That's essentially what an episcope was. It was a common Greek term that the church simply adopted to describe the key leadership positions within the early church. Um, during this time, Tim had encountered, Timothy had encountered apparently a great deal of opposition from both false teachers but also, uh, without being able to say exactly what the details are, there were other disruptive elements that were in the church. And it seems likely that there were those who were taking advantage, we might call it a character weakness in Timothy. Uh, the, actually, the word that's used is timidity. Um, we know that he, Paul says, don't let any man despise you because of your youthfulness. 
Um, youthfulness just means to be young. It doesn't specify a specific age range. But by what we know of Timothy's life, you know, not, not only when he was born, but also when he died, we estimate that he was probably in his early 30s. Now, we may not consider the early 30s to be young, but in a culture that is patriarchal, where in other words, the older you are, the more important you are, uh, 30 would seem to be a very young age to be in charge of what was becoming a very large and prominent church. Um, and it brought some challenges. Undoubtedly, just there were older people, just because of their own worldview, would have thought, well, he's too young to be able to handle these responsibilities, and we should make sure that we're the ones who are ultimately settling things. Um, that's why, again, Paul says in verse, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. In essence, Paul's saying, win them over by proving that you're worthy of the responsibility that I've entrusted into your hands. He's not talking about that attitude that sometimes we get like, don't tell me what to do and you're old and dumb and senile and I'm smart and bright and clever. You know, we kind of get this kind of dynamic going in in relationships sometimes. And that's not at all where Paul's coming from. What Paul is simply saying is, don't let yourself become distracted or discouraged because of the criticism, but just do the opposite. Go out of the way to prove to them that you are worthy of the respect that is, goes with a position that has been assigned to you, that it wasn't just given to you because I like you, but you are really worthy and capable to be in that role. It also appears, as I said, that Timothy apparently had a personality that was easily intimidated, and I have to control myself because I tend to be one of those people who tries to psychoanalyze Timothy and why he was this way. Uh, I just realize now that he's been dead too long for me to fix him. So the bottom line is that he says little things about Timothy in his letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16.10, Paul says, when Timothy comes, he's sending him to the Corinthians, see to it that has, there is nothing to fear while he is with you. The, again, the root of this word fear is this idea of timidity. Don't do anything to intimidate him which is an interesting statement because, again, in writing in 2 Corinthians 1.7, he reminds Timothy, he says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a, and, and literally some have translated a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And it's because that word that's used there, timidity, literally is translated a spirit of cowardice. Paul wasn't calling him a coward, but when you look at cowardice, cowardice is something that flees from something that it's frightened by, and oftentimes when it should stand and be strong. And so he says, and essentially he's saying, don't give in to the things that are intimidating you or frightening you, but take your stand and don't let yourself be pushed aside. Now, which brings me to what is the book, the letter really about? And the, the focus of the letter is, is relatively simple, even though it's six full chapters with lots of details. But really, he's just got two main topics he wants to address. The, the first one is false doctrines. Now, keep in mind that every letter of Paul had warnings to one degree or another about false teaching, false doctrines, heresies, and so forth. The only one that doesn't make some reference to it is the little tiny book of Philemon, which is really nothing more than a personal letter and doesn't go into any doctrinal issues per se. But nonetheless, 
We find that Paul always deal, dealt with it, but not to the extent that he did in this letter to the Ephesians. And part of the reason may simply be that Ephesus was a crossroads for a lot of things. It was a center of trade and commerce. People would traveling would pass through it, uh, both from the east and the west and the north and the south. So there was a lot of busyness, a lot of stuff going on. But it also became kind of a hotbed of a lot of strange religious movements. Things coming from the east and the west both would kind of coalesce. And there was a lot of what we call syncretism. The idea of taking various religious ideas and blending them together to come up with your own designer religion. Not a whole lot different than what we see in America today or in many parts of the world. You know, we have the internet so we can get every whack job in the world can put something up there and people look at it and go, wow, it's on the internet, it must be true. And so as a result, you know, um, there was probably a lot of really strange things. And again, we can't tease out of the text exactly what it was that Timothy was dealing with because Paul lists a whole lot of stuff that was going on that he's telling Timothy, don't get distracted. And I think there's an important concept here that for those of us who uh, struggle with making sure that we're doctrinally correct in our lives. You know, the way they train bank tellers to identify counterfeits is by having them handle a great deal of authentic money. In other words, they don't give them counterfeit money and say, feel it, look at it, touch it, do this so you'll know what it feels like. They do just the opposite. Handle the real stuff, and then once in a while they slip a counterfeit in, and as they're just counting it, their fingers automatically go, wait a minute, something strange here. The texture, this doesn't feel quite right. And the same thing, I think, applies to when we're talking about doctrine. The way to become aware or sensitized and, and really arm yourself about getting captured by false teaching is simply to become incredibly familiar with what the Bible actually says. I've never found somebody who is basically familiar and knowledgeable about the Scriptures who is easily duped by some crazy doctrine. It almost always comes from people who have somewhat of a knowledge of what the Bible says and they have bits and pieces because that's how they read the Bible. They think the Bible is kind of like a cafeteria food, and you go through and pick what you want instead of just sitting eating a full meal. But the bottom line is if you read it from Genesis to Revelation, which kind of is why we're doing what we're doing here, when you do that, you begin to get a real sense of not only what the Bible says, but the flow of Scripture, what Scripture really says, what is the personality, the character, the nature of God's Word. And you can become very theologically sophisticated because even to this point in my life, I will hear stuff. There are still people who are crafting new things all the time, new theological wrinkles. And I'll hear something and I'll just go, wait a minute, something doesn't ring true about that. And as you begin to look into it, suddenly you begin to realize, wait a minute, that's, that's not what the Bible says. And you know that. You may not even be able to immediately say you know where the chapter and verse is. It just simply says that just doesn't have the ring of truth to it. And essentially that's the emphasis that Paul keeps on giving to Timothy. Well, eight times here Paul makes reference to false teachings. In fact, uh, he, many times he begins by making some very negative comments about it. In, in verse 3 of chapter 1 he says, Command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. These are guys in the church, and they're teaching stuff that isn't biblical. He says, just command them to stop doing it. 
Wish it worked that well. In, in verse 5, he says, some have wandered from these and turned to meaningless talk. They, they want to be teachers of the law, which is really their problem. They want to be exalted ones, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And he goes on to point out, because it's contrary to what is sound doctrine. It's contrary to what is consistently true with God's word. He goes on and later on chapter 6 says in verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and he understands nothing. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You ever notice that the less you know about something, the more you think you know about something? You ever had something you looked at and said, well, that looks like that would be easy to do, and then you try it, and you realize, dang, that's hard. I just experienced that when I was playing video games with my four-year-old grandson. I just, oh, that looks easy, and I mean, he just killed me, four years old, and he's destroyed me. I died before I could even get out of the box. So the point is that things can have an appearance, but once you become sophisticated in what you're doing, you realize that things have great complexity to them, and essentially Paul's saying these men so desperately want to be, you know, basically important people that they're taking on the airs of being communicators of the truth, but they really don't know anything that they're talking about. But most of the time, Paul emphasized the positive aspects again. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching. And verse 16, he goes on, and watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them. Again, in verse 17 of chapter 5, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and in teaching. Uh, so this really becomes really the major concern and the reason why he wrote this. The other thing, the second reason why he wrote it or focus of this particular book is he wanted to describe to Timothy how an ordered church was supposed to function. And it's, it's not a liturgy at all, but simply saying these are the things that should be characteristic of a community of believers now, we might ask, why was Paul, what was the necessity behind writing this letter? Some commentators suspect that Timothy basically wanted to quit. He wanted to give up. In fact, you know, Paul makes references to being that place, like he said in Galatians 6 9, where he says, You become weary in doing good. Uh, that word weary in the original literally means just exhaustion. You're just tired and worn out. As my father-in-law says, I'm not just tired, I'm worse. I'm tired and I'm worn out. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's emphatic where you just get to the point where you're just going, I just can't do this anymore. Now, I have to confess, I have been there many times in life in many different circumstances, and what I discovered is that I can't. I just think I can't, or at least you get to a point where you just, I don't want to take this anymore. You know, it's kind of a Richard Nixon moment. You're not going to have me to kick around anymore, you know? And, you, you know, you go through these, all these gyrations, and the simple point is that God comes through in those moments and says, oh, yes, you can. By my grace, you can do and endure and tolerate and put up with and live through anything that I have ordained you to go through. And so I think that's a real possibility. I can't say with certainty because Timothy doesn't give us any indication of the text that he's saying, I quit. <laughs> Here's my letter of resignation. But there was something that motivated Paul to write this letter to him. And I think that's as good a guess as any that we could come up with. 
But finally, what would I call the key verse? And key verses, I'll be honest, you get people saying, this is the key verse of this book. It's really personal opinion. And so I'm going to admit that this is my personal opinion. I just happen to always be right. Uh, so anyway, but in chapter 6, verse 20, I think it's the verse, to me, the key verse is one that summarizes the entire message the best. And that's where he says in 620, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care and turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, knowledge in the size idea of superior perception and understanding and intellect, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. In other words, he's saying to Timothy, here, Timmy, here's what your job is. Your job is to guard the gospel that's been entrusted to you and guard against allowing people to simply wander from the faith. You can't control everybody's behavior and everybody's choices, but you can make sure that the church doesn't follow them if they decide to go in this direction or that direction other than what Scripture outlines. Which brings me then to the outline of the book. And for me, the outline is a very simple one, although it's kind of imbalanced. I have point one, I have point two. What's point one? Well, point one is, I put it this way, you have everything you need, Timothy. Everything you need to succeed. God has given you everything. Now, that's only the first chapter. The rest of it is going to be how to run the church in an ordered way, which makes up the other final five chapters. But what does he have that he needs to succeed? Well, first of all, in verse 11, he said that you've been trusted with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So that's the first thing he says to you. You have to understand, Timothy, that you're in this role not because I simply appointed you to it. You're not in this role because you happened to win the election or you were there at the right time in the right moment or anything that, you know, you've kind of reached the, the you played your cards right and you reached the pinnacle of your career field. He says, you need to understand God has entrusted this to you. This has been placed in your trust. This isn't something that is an issue of whether it fits your personality or you're the right guy for the job. Sometimes God's choices don't make a lot of sense from a human perspective because we think that God would choose somebody that was bold and aggressive and assertive and in control, a power magnet to run this mighty church. And instead he chooses a guy who's basically saying, I don't want to go out there. <laughs> You know, but he's done that a lot. I mean, that was Moses who said, find somebody else. I'm not a good talker. It's Jeremiah who's saying, I'm too young to go out and tell these guys are going to hell. You know, there's a lot of things that, that there's a lot of those kind of people that God chose because somehow he is magnified in their weakness. And that's a concept that is so counterintuitive that we have a hard time understanding it because when God begins to draw us to do something, we often look at ourselves and say, but I'm not qualified that's the right answer. That's the first right answer. I'm not qualified. <laughs> exactly. But if God is calling you, he is the qualifier. He is the one that empowers you to do it. Now, how do we know whether you are gifted or called to do things? I, there's, I call the, the two-finger test. Number one, do other people see God moving through you? That's a big one. And the uh, second one is, does it bring forth fruit? It's kind of like, you know, the music industry is kind of tough like that. And the Christian music world is kind of tough because there's a lot of people who, they look at music and they think, wow, that would be so cool to be up there and just do it. You know, my, my uh, blessed uh, mother-in-law, you know, um, she's getting up there and all the 
synapses aren't exactly firing right. But she, you know, she made the interesting comment. She says, I just feel like I could sit down at a piano and just start playing. And, you know, and, and I have to assure her, Mom, you could. It would be pretty horrible, but you could do that because a cat walking across the keys can play the piano. And sometimes people think, you know, well, I, I have this gift. I have the gift to teach or to preach or to do this or do that. Um, it's like the cartoon I saw one time where uh, a guy began to sing a song and he said, the Lord gave me this song and somebody cried out, don't blame that on God. You know, it's like, you know, it's, I can write music. I don't know if you know that. I can write music. May you never hear it. <laughs> that, that's the point is that it's, it's not necessarily what everybody is called to do the same thing. So one of the real tests if God has really called you is other people are going to see it in you probably before you do. Other people are saying, you know, I just don't know. Every time you share about the scriptures, I really get ministered to. Well, maybe you actually have a, a teaching gift or some other kind of gifting and empowerment in your life. So that's usually where it begins. Other people see it before you see it. But secondly, it begins to have impact upon other people's lives. It begins to change other people's lives. And so whether you have a gift of faith or a gift of prayer or whatever it is that God has empowered you with, you begin to see it moving in ways that are really supernatural and you realize that was just a God moment. But that whole presupposition that we have many times, well, I'm not qualified, is a good place to begin the journey of what God has in your life because God specializes in taking the unqualified and using them in ultra-qualified ways for his glory. So the first thing he says, God has entrusted to you this, Timothy. It's not for you to reject it. Secondly, in verses 12 through 17, he goes on to say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me the strength. And he goes on, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. So that God not only entrusts something to you, but when he entrusts it to you, he also empowers you to do it. He empowers you to do it. That's why, again, if we look at ourselves and say, well, I don't have the strength, that's not really the key issue. The fact is that if God wants you to do something, he's going to empower you to do it. And then thirdly, he equips you by his Holy Spirit. In, in 118, Paul says, Keep, keeping with the prophecies that once were made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. And again, in chapter 4, verse 14, he said to him, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, Paul's telling Timothy, when God called you, he empowered you, and that empowering is a gifting, a charisma of the Spirit of God. And a gift, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, is not something that we have earned. It's something that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. One of the saddest things, I think, is when people persist in pursuing uh, service to God in an area in which it's very evident that God has not gifted them. I'll never forget the, the gentleman who came to me one time. Uh, in fact, I was serving in a different church in a different part of the country, but he had come to me and, and <clears throat> wanted to know how he could get into the ministry of our church at that time, where I was the associate pastor. And, I just asked him, I said, well, uh, why do you feel like you're called to be a pastor? And he said, well, I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, all the men on my, father, my family's mother and mom, dad's side are all pastors. And I said, so where'd that go? He said, well, I pastored two churches, and each time I lasted one year before they fired me. 
And I said, why did they fire you? And they said, well, they said I wasn't called. Well, why do you feel that you're called? Well, because all the men on my mom and dad's side have been pastors. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. And I said, yeah, yeah, but what are you doing now? He says, well, I run a daycare. He says, how's it going? Fantastic. It's really doing well. Okay. <laughs> People are telling you you're not called. You're not fruitful there, but you're doing this thing. And then later I talked to his wife, and she said, he just he doesn't get it. He is marvelous in doing daycares. He's incredible. But he doesn't see that because in his mind, he can't let go of this idea that he's not significant unless he's doing that. I just had a conversation with another pastor, a friend of mine, on last Sunday, and he was talking about, well, yeah. I said, how are you doing? He says, well, I'm, I'm working. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. I, I, I got this job, and people come in, and I, I'm leading people to Christ, and I got this Bible study at work going, and this is happening, that happens. But man, I just wish I was still in the ministry. I said, dude. I think you're more in the ministry than I am. (laughs) Really, I said, God has put you in the marketplace. That is the ministry. Maybe that is what, but again, we can get our minds hooked on this idea that whatever label we have, that's what makes us significant instead of saying, where's God making me fruitful? You know, some people think, well, I don't really contribute much. I just help people out. It's like, kind of like Dorcas in the book of Acts. When she dies, all these people come and say, she helped us all the time. She fed us, she clothed us, she cared for us, she did all these things. Now, they don't say anything about a single sermon she ever preached. She didn't lead a Bible study. What did she do? She helped people in ways that made the quality of their life greater. And they saw God through what she did. And that becomes the critical issue. How does God manifest himself through you? Because scripture teaches that he does manifest himself in and through every one of us. And it's just a matter of allowing other people to help you recognize what that is and your own self-accepting that this is actually where God has graced me because there's nothing more dangerous than to be in an area where God hasn't graced you because that's what it always comes down to. God graces you to do something. You don't want to be in an area where he doesn't want you to be. It taught me to really be prayerful when I got invited to speak at different places because the whole point was, God, do you want me to speak there? Because the most frightening thing is if I accept it out of, an, out of an ego fulfillment, oh, yeah, they want me to come and be the expert on something. And so I show up, and reality is God doesn't give me anything to say. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to find my best old sermon and repeat it. And hope at least they're impressed with my flesh, if not with the spirit. And that's a terrible trap. Then you become just a talking head, you know? It's like watching the evening news. They're just reading that stuff. So the reality, I'm sorry if you're in the news of business. I just (laughs) didn't mean to insult you. You read it really well. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Anyway, think before you speak. Think before you speak. Filter, filter. But I think I'll move on now. Anyway, so Paul says again, you've been entrusted by God, you've been empowered by grace, you've been equipped by the Spirit, so get out there and start doing the job that God has given you to do. And that's to really, as he says in chapter 3, verse 14, he defines what that is. He says, I'm writing to you these instructions so that you will know how you, people ought to conduct themselves in God's house, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So he says, basically, you have a responsibility to teach people how to behave in in the community of faith, not the building per se, 
but to know how to behave yourself in the context of Christian community, which is essentially what he's talking about. And it's interesting that the very first thing that he hits on is prayer. Usually, (laughs) prayer is our last response. God says that you would learn to make it where you begin everything. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I urge you then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone. And he goes on to say, even for the king. Who was the king at that time? Nero. It is interesting. I mean, (laughs) if there was ever an argument not to pray for someone, it would have been Caesar Nero. I mean, the guy was a whack job beyond anybody's calculation. Total narcissistic sociopath, narcissistic psychopath, right? And he says, but pray for the king. Pray for him. Pray for his soul. And he desperately needed it. Again, in verse 8, he goes on to say, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And then he adds, without anger and disputing. I want you to pray, and I don't want there to be anger or disputation. Those are two things that will ensure that your prayers will be powerless. If you pray in anger, you you pray uh, contentiously, you know, you just know there's just going to be no power there. So, He begins by saying, it's this prayer thing. It's where it begins. And then he moves on, secondly, to talking about leadership. And it's it's interesting because he prohibits women from being episcopae. Interesting, he says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. The the word authority literally means to, uh, to, the Greek word literally means to assume a stance of independent authority, uh, to give orders, to dictate. Uh, One translator put it, J.B. Phillips put it, to tell a man what to do. In other words, he's basically not saying that women can't have an opinion, they can't have a voice, or they can't speak into the situation or moments. That's not the point at all. Or that they can't teach the Bible. He just says they can't be the governing authority of the church. And then he goes on to argue that by, by citing that God created Adam first and then he created Eve. That's his biblical grounds for making that position. Not because Eve sinned, but because that was a creative order that God set in place. That men should be the head of the church, they should be the head of the home, um, and so forth. Now, I've had people say to me, well, I don't agree with that. I think that was just the history, the context, the blah, 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 blah. And so I just ask, would you read the passage again and now tell me, what does it say? I don't know what else to do with that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like in the end of the day, it's either God's word and it's true or it's not. Enough on that. Anyway, secondly, he begins to talk at length about overseers, about the bishops, the episcopate. He says in verse 2 that the overseers must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. But probably the one thing that distinguishes a bishop or a pastor, an overseer, from a deacon is the fact, he says, they have to be able to teach. In fact, when you look at the character qualifiers that are given, and together there's some 21 different things he lists, but when you look at these things together, the one thing that separates a pastoral, a bishop, and a deacon is that deacons are not required to be teachers, but pastors are required to, have, uh, to be able to teach, the ability to teach and communicate the word. So he talks about the overseers, he talks about the deacons, and then he talks about the people. And he talks about how that the older people should be corrected when they're in error, but do it with respect. That there's implied that men are supposed are that people who are older should be treated with respect simply because they have survived longer than you have. That's got to be worth something on its face value. 
And then he turns, and what about younger people? He says, well, treat them with respect, like their family. That young men should look at young women and treat them as if they're their sisters. Young women should view young men as if they're their brothers. And uh, to see them, that there is this family connection. And we get the understanding, now if you came from a highly dysfunctional family, uh, and you came in a situation where my brother and I basically preyed on each other <laughs> in violent ways growing up, you know, you may have a little trouble understanding it, but for me, my best friend in the entire world is my brother. I mean, that's, he, he, he's my brother in Christ, he's my brother in the flesh, and there's nobody in the world to whom I love and am closer to other than my wife. So that, you know, this is the idea that Paul is implying here, that we see this family bond within the community of faith. He goes at great length to talk about widows, and we can only assume that there must have been a lot of them in the church of Ephesus, considering that people didn't live a long time. I mean, the average life in Sepectasy was someplace between 35 and 40 years of age. And so there were probably a lot of women who tend to outlive men because they tend to have occupations in the home that were less hazardous than men who are out in the marketplace or other places. As a consequence, there probably were a lot of widows. And he's very clear in saying who the church can actually support. And she has to be a woman who is 60 years of age, who is a child, who is in the church, a person of faith, and who has proved themselves faithful over the years. And so he goes into, like I say, very copious details about who should be allowed to be supported by the church. He then also talks about the relationship towards the other leaders in the church who aren't necessarily the governing elders, where he says in verse 7 of chapter 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor. Again, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. In verse 19, he says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Um, in other words, not two or three people who have heard the same rumor, but two people who are witnesses. Verse 22, he also says, do not be hasty in laying on hands and do not share in the sins of others. What he means by that is, don't be in a hurry to promote somebody into a position of leadership. In fact, earlier he said about the elders that they first need to be proven. They have to have a track record that, you know, it's not just their words, but their, it's their actions over a protracted period of time that becomes really the measurement of who they are. And most of us generally understand that, but we live in an age where image is so predominant that, that people don't really look deeply at the character. In fact, it was Stephen Covey in one of his book years ago who said that this, in the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he made the interesting observation. He says, we have moved in America from being a character-based culture to a personality-based culture. He says, through most of our history, people looked at your track record. They looked at your character. What kind of a person you were? The, were you honest? Were you faithful? Was that something they saw in over an extended period of time? He says, but today, if you have a winning personality, people don't even think to ask, is their character sound? And so this becomes a, a, basically a biblical concept. He says, let them first be proven. Don't promote men because he said they may end up causing great damage. He even speaks to the slaves because there were, keep in mind, probably as many as half the people in the city were actually property under, under the culture and the Roman laws of the day. And he says in verse 1 that all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their master worthy of full respect. 
so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Many of these we would look at today as being employed in the households. Many of them, there were the tutors, the teachers. They were often people of tremendous uh, responsibility. They actually ran the businesses because the goal of the Roman was to live a leisure life and not have to do anything, do any work. So these weren't people who were just simply, you know, hacking away in the fields, although there were those people as well. But he says, if we're going to win the slave masters to Christ... We need to be a witness of Christ. Later on, we'll see what his real attitude towards slave was when we get to the letter of Philemon. He certainly wasn't endorsing the practice. But nonetheless, he was saying that if you're a slave and the church was full of converted slaves, he said, you need to think that you're a witness to them as well, even though the temptation to be resentful must have been tremendous. He also goes on again in chapter 4 and 6, particularly chapter 6, about talking about heretics and false teachers again. Uh, which we've already touched on at some length. And then finally, he speaks to people who are rich. He says in verse 17 of chapter 6, command those who are rich, he goes on to say, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Essentially, you know, we would say, store your treasures in heaven. But finally, I think that in, in the end of the letter, in verse 12, he lays out the final exhortation where he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, essentially Paul is saying to Timothy, you know, we we try to approach life as if it's a playground, when in fact life is a battlefield. You know, this world is not our home. Our our ultimate destiny isn't found within the the, the bookends of birth and death. It's, it's after we pass on and we go in to be the presence of the Lord. That's where the hope of our calling is ultimately found. Not that we shouldn't ever pray for good things or that we will never experience any good things because most of us are blessed in ways that we know we don't deserve and we're thankful for. But at the same time, we can be thankful for good things and hopeful for good things but not to become bitter or estranged towards God or others when things don't go so good. Because essentially, we are in a spiritual war, as Paul reminded us in the sixth chapter of the letter of the Ephesians. So his exhortation in the very end is, Timothy, it's not about giving up. It's about standing your ground and fighting the good fight of faith until it's over. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray that you would help us to not only kind of grasp the direction that this book takes and its emphasis, but also, as I always pray, Lord, that enough of us would get interested enough in what we heard tonight that we would just take the time this week to read this book and to really kind of uh, seek to understand what it has to say in detail and in specifics. We thank you for your word, Lord. We, We thank you for the truth that it brings into our lives. We just ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.